Welcome to the U.S. Max Today podcast, produced by the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy. In today's podcast, U.S. Max fellow Juan Fernando Ibarra del Cueto discusses institutional building processes in Mexico. In his talk titled, The Political Economy of Divergence, Subnational Development Regimes in Mexico. Buenos días a todos, desde acá, desde Nueva York. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for the introduction, Rafael. The paper that I sent is really the basis for upcoming project that I'm working on. In fact, it's a project that I uh, used to apply for the fellowship at USMEX. The general interest of my research agenda is institutional building. I am currently finishing a, a book manuscript looking at um, state building trajectories in Latin America during the, during the 20th century. And that's really where the focus of my research is. This project in particular intersects with other two that I have been working on during the last uh, year or so. One is about civil society and state building that I'm working with Fernanda Somuano, who is at uh, Colmex. The other one is about economic liberalization and institutional building with Melissa Rogers, who was a fellow at the center last year. And I believe Francisco commented on that paper that we're working on at that time. And this paper that I circulated right now, it's really an effort, an analytical effort to develop theoretical expectations to guide the next steps after a first round of field research that I did in Mexico in 2019. So really motivation for the project in conjunction with my general interest in uh, institutional building is the significant changes uh, in trends of economic outcomes of Mexican states after 1990, right? So this is a process that has uh, coincided with economic liberalization and decentralization. And my goal is to probe the role of institutional building processes at the subnational level and their effect in the production of these divergent outcomes, right? So just to illustrate the point, I want to show you these, uh, these graphs. These are called convergence graphs. And basically what they show is they compare rates of growth with initial levels of GDP. And just to cut to the chase and not make this, uh, you know, about these graphs, which only provide some motivation. The point here is that whenever you see a, a negative slope in the, in the graph, that means that, that there's a process of convergence going on. That is poorer states are growing faster than richer states. By the way, these are what we're, what I'm graphing here are the states uh, of uh, Mexico. And whenever you have this uh, negative slope, you, you see a process of convergence, poorer states growing faster than richer states. And this is really a process that has been traced back to the early 40s. I do not have the data to uh, run these scatter plots all the way back there, but other people have estimated this. And really this process of convergence started around the mid 40s and continued until the 90s when a structural change shifted these patterns importantly. So you see here these trends from 1970 to 1990. And then in 1990, we start to see a process that it's a little bit more erratic, right? So you have divergence in the first 10 years, in the first decade after 1990. Then you see a strong convergence during five years, then a flat pattern, and then again, divergence. So the very strong pattern uh, convergence that had existed from 1940 to 1990 breaks up in the 90s. And the trajectories of economic development of the states, which had been converging, start to diverge again. Now, the traditional interpretation of this divergence 
You see it all the time, by the way, every newspaper article that talks about the economy of Mexico at the subnational level tells a story of, you know, northern industrialization, integration with North American economy, supply chains, etc., etc., and then a South that it's uh, left behind. And this is all about geographic proximity, infrastructure, human capital being better in the North. And thus, these conditions enabling northern states to better exploit the opportunities of economic liberalization, of NAFTA, and the like. But this interpretation is not really borne out by the data, even though, anecdotally, uh, again, it's mentioned in all, almost every newspaper article that you can find about this, or even sometimes, even by economic and political commentators, the data about who are the relative winners and losers economically in the last 30 years does not seem to support this narrative. And so I, I present here, just for illustration purposes, a couple of maps, okay? The first one illustrates flows of foreign direct investment in the country, right? And it's organized, states are organized by, uh, by quintile of the amount of resources that they are receiving. And this map certainly does seem to support the idea that northern states were disproportionately benefited by economic liberalization. That is, the money flows were certainly going there. They were going to the northern states in particular, even though Guanajuato, for example, stands out a little bit and, and Mexico City too. But in general, we see stronger flows of direct investment to the north. But in terms of the relative change, the relative economic change, the winners are really not located there. Uh, right here in this map, you can see changes in GDP per capita rankings from 1989 to 2013. Again, this is only for illustrative purposes to give a, a little bit of a, a sense of the outcome that motivates this research. And what you see here is that states that changed up more than five positions in the relative ranking from 1989, when the process of divergence started to 2013, are really located in this region that it's commonly known as El Bajío, which includes the states of Querétaro, Guanajuato, San Luis Potosí, Aguascalientes, Zacatecas. And then you see a divergent patterns, right? So it's not, it's not obvious that states that are better located either because of infrastructure or because of geographic proximity to the United States, that these are the states that are necessarily doing better. And so the question here is, is why? I don't think there's a, there's a good explanation for these patterns. And I believe they are indicative that there are subnational factors at work here. So the research question that guides my research with this project is what explains the emergence of different strategies of economic governance in Mexican states? And the question as such is as much about what enabled states to play this role. Okay, so, so we need first to understand under what conditions states became important players in economic governance in contrast to their silent role that they played during most of the 20th century. And it's also a question about the factors that drive variance between states. Why is it that some states, in some states, economic governance seems to be, you know, not, not incredibly important or very erratic or very arbitrary, as, um, as I will illustrate in a few moments. And why is it that other states seem to have very consistent policies to promote economic growth? And I want to clarify that even though a lot of the motivation that I'm providing uh, for the research comes directly from GDP figures and divergence, the, the outcome that I'm trying to explain is not really growth per se, but rather the changes in the structural characteristics of, of national economies, right? I rely on a basic assumption that I think it's, I, I would love to discuss this, I think there are a few of our you know, members of this group and fellows who are also interested in political economy. But the basic assumption is that institutional factors underlie economic outcomes. I think this is, there's growing consensus around this position, even though there are still 
some groups within academia that see other factors, non-institutional factors as important. But I think there's a growing consensus around this notion that institutional factors underlie economic outcomes. And this is a basic assumption that underlies my own research. And so obviously here the point is that I believe state institutions, that is local institutions, do matter. Now, obviously they do not matter in every single case, in every single country, there are instances in which the autonomy of subnational units is just not enough to grant them this role in economic outcomes. But I think under certain conditions, these subnational units can become and do become very, very important players. And I believe that that has been the case for Mexican states in the last 30 years. So the, the argument that I'm developing right now relies on this notion of subnational development regimes, okay? The term draws inspiration from recent working uh, comparative political economy by Boyer, Pallier and Thielen, who speak about uh, development regimes to explain divergent trajectories of development in the European context after um, liberalization in the 80s. And basically, they rely on this notion of an ensemble of interactions between economic, political and social actors, right? And so I adapt this, this notion of development regimes that comes from this literature and I adapt it to the context of subnational units in Mexico. Now, this is a, a critical juncture, path-dependent type of argument, right? So there was a critical juncture that was opened in the 90s with the three parallel processes of democratization, economic liberalization, and decentralization, which created conditions, right? So this was a juncture that created conditions that enabled local leaders to play a new, a new role in economic governance, right? And then things that happened around the 90s were critical to understand the path that the states followed afterward, right? So, the, so in, in every critical juncture type of argument, you have two different types of causal factors. One is an enabling type of condition. In this case, this is given, as I said, by economic liberalization, decentralization and democratization. And you have also a set of productive causes, right? In this case, I see these three factors as being critical, the availability of resources, the nature of inter-elite conflict, and the nature of labor capital relations. Now, ultimately for subnational units, for states to actually play a role, an important role in shaping economic outcomes, I argue that it's necessary for them to develop deeper institutions, right? Uh, institutional building. They have to build the institutions that can actually play a role in economic governance. And my argument is that institutional building was only possible where neither local economic elites nor clientelistic networks captured the resources from decentralization. Now, again, in the version that, I, that I'm working with right now, because what I'm trying to do is to set theoretical expectations, I adopt this language that it's a little bit deterministic in nature, or per perhaps it's a little bit not, not warranted at the moment, but it's just to give me a clear set of expectations that are logically derived from the argument. I would like to explain, so again, this is a, a critical juncture type of argument that leads to four different outcomes. I want to explain a little bit more of the argument of self and then the four outcomes, and then provide some suggestive evidence in favor of the existence of these subnational development regimes that I'm talking about. So visually or in a graphic form, this is, this is the argument that I'm presenting. So we have first a first causal tier, which we have decentralization and economic liberalization as providing certain conditions that open up a space for then productive conditions to actually shape the nature of subnational development regimes. These are right here, inter-elite conflict. Labor, labor capital relations, which lead then to different types of subnational development regimes, and then finally to economic outcomes. Now, 
I will explain the sequence of the argument and then the four outcomes of, of interest. So the point here is that decentralization, even though provided the space of autonomy and the resources for states to matter, the way that it was designed, it, present a, it presented a very interesting conundrum for local political elites. Basically, decentralization, as most of you know, in Mexico operated through the decentralization of resources, the devolution of um, political authority, but without significantly changing the nature of fiscal relations within the country. That is, there remained one large actor responsible for tax collection, and that's really the federal government. The tax authority that both states and municipalities have is comparatively limited. And because most of the decentralization operated through the transfer of resources, these resources um, could be either used for institutional building purposes or alternatively to shield local political elites from um, electoral competition um, and from demands emanating from, from society. And so what I am ar ar arguing in this, in this visual figure that you have right here is that those states that benefit the most from the change in the rules of uh, transfers that occurred in the 1990s that were really geared towards supporting PRI-leaning uh, states were more likely to develop what I call rentier regimes, which is the first outcome that I have right here, right? So where states received a disproportionate amount of decentralization resources, it was more likely that they would develop a rentier regime. I will explain in a second what a rentier regime is. So this is a decision tree, right? So the alternative is receiving less resources from, from decentralization, in which case you could have what, any of three different types of non-rentier regimes. And then within those cases, if you have strong inter-elite conflict, that would lead to deeper institutional building regimes. In contrast, where you didn't have a strong inter-elite conflict, you would have minimal institutional building regimes. So for clarity, I have already described two outcomes, rentier regimes, minimal institutional building regimes right here. These two do not entail any significant institutional building geared towards affecting economic governance. Then within the states that have both the condition of having received less resources and have strong inter-elite conflict, you could have either cooperative or non-cooperative labor capital relations. Non-cooperative capital, uh, labor capital relations lead to what I call a shifting regime, which again, I will explain in one moment. And cooperative labor capital relations lead to a reconversion regime. Let me explain these four different types of regimes in a little bit more detail. Again, rentier regimes, comparative advantage regimes, shifting regimes, and reconversion regimes. In rentier regimes, resources from decentralization were used to shore up the fortunes of local politicians. Local economic elites, as well as popular organizations, became clients of state administrations. Institutional change was basically geared towards the construction of patronage networks. And uh, in terms of economic change, what you had was basically a closer connection of local economic elites to governmental uh, activities. Two cases that I mentioned as potential cases of this type of regimes are 
uh, Veracruz, Hidalgo. I will mention uh, a little later the case of Puebla, which also seems like a very good candidate for this type of, of regime, in which, again, opportunities of economic liberalization are foregone, basically in favor of opportunities associated with, you can call it corruption, you can call it clientelism, you can call it something else, but basically a strong dependent relationship between business elites and uh, political actors at the subnational level. Second, um, subnational development regime, comparative advantage. There's a unified economic elite. So again, remember these are, we're dealing now with cases that were not disproportionately benefited from decentralization, but which have a unified economic elite that constitute the most powerful local interest. Institutional building is geared towards protecting sources of wealth of this unified economic elite. The main basis of institutional change is the creation of local agencies that can aid in the exploitation of comparative advantage. There's very little change in economic structure. Potential cases are Michoacán and Sinaloa, where basically what you see is the emergence of local boards of agriculture that play a little bit of the role that federal agencies of intermediation used to play before liberalization and which basically support agricultural production and then the reconversion of cultural production for export rather than uh, local consumption. Third type of subnational development regime. This is what I call a shifting regime. Here, what we have is a strong inter-elite conflict. And, and this signals the willingness to significantly change the structure of, of the subnational economy. Institutional building is geared towards facilitating the transition towards manufacturing. Institutional change is marked by tax incentives, provision of infrastructure, provision of labor training, uh, stuff like that, a basic labor training. And there's a significant modification of occupational structure. So these are cases where the state goes from a more traditional primary oriented economy towards a manufacturing uh, largely based on assembly and, and maquilas and stuff like that. And then finally, I move on to the fourth type of regime, which is one that I call the, the reconversion regime. This is the one that requires, I'm gonna use Puebla and Querétaro to illustrate the points that I'm making right now and inter-elite conflict. Uh, reconversion regimes, this, these are the, the regimes that require the deepest institutional change because they are geared towards a deep and structural transformation of the local economy. There's local pressure to enable the transformation of local firms to face international competition. Institutional building is geared towards adapting existing manufacturing capacity, that is manufacturing capacity that existed under the import substitution model, basically to supply the, the local market is now reconverted right? To either become part of a larger supply chain of other companies or to manufacture goods that are going to go directly to export markets. There's a lot of investment made creating clusters, uh, retraining, and there's a significant change in the characteristics of economic production without a substantial change in occupational structure. That is because there's a lot of manufacturing capacity that is being repurposed now for novel economic conditions. The potential cases that I have here are Querétaro, San Luis Potosí, Aguascalientes also makes for a strong reconversion case, basically because of the type of manufacturing. So both do manufacturing, but shifting regimes do basic manufacturing assembly, Maquila, basically. Reconversion, do stuff like, for example, in Querétaro, aerospace, materials, elect electronic appliances, uh, stuff like that. Much more complicated manufacturing that requires much more complicated labor and much more complicated supply chains. So you're separating between two types of manufacturing. The, the good one, let's say, the reconversion regime is more uh, capital intensive. It's more capital intensive, definitely. Yes. Exactly. But the other one that is you, that you think is is 
not as good is the labor intensive type of manufacturing. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So I want to talk briefly about, again, this is a little bit abstract, even though it's kind of inspired on all the information that I uh, collected uh, in my first round of field research. It sounds very abstract. These are four ideal typical development regimes. Maybe not all states, you know, are, are, can be actually classified within one of these, uh, these regimes. The argument itself is a little bit in the abstract right now, but I do want to provide a little bit of evidence of two aspects of the, uh, of the argument. The first one is this rentier effect of decentralization, right? And the second one, is this one right here of inter-edit conflict. I will illustrate this with general data from all, from all states, and I, I will illustrate this with a very brief comparison of the cases of, of Puebla and Querétaro. And at, at this point, I will leave the part of, even though the Puebla-Querétaro comparison does speak a little bit to the labor capital relations part, it's, it's, um, it's not an, um, as clear-cut as the inter-edit conflict part. Let me move on to that. So again, one thing that I am arguing is that states that received m most resources at the, at the moment where decentralization occurred developed into tier regimes. I want you to look at this graph. This is again, I'm not, this is kind of anecdotal evidence, if you wish, a little bit more than anecdotal because it's a little bit more systematic, but I'm not pretending that this is, you know, strong or solid evidence in favor of the argument. It just gives me an indication, a strong indication that this is a good lead to follow and that this is where things uh, were moving at this moment. So on the left, you're looking at PRI support versus transfers in 1989, basically, it's, there's no strong correlation. Transfers, in fact, had built in a formula where they were supposed to uh, incentivize local tax collection. There was a premium in transfers given to those states that collected taxes better and stuff like that. This was all changed in the 90s, where basically formulas for the distribution of transfers were strongly informed by population by levels of marginalization. And these two things, the fact that population and marginalization were used as the basis for the new formulas of both participaciones and later on aportaciones in the 90s made a significant change. And even though they, they are objective in the sense that everybody knows the nature of the formulas, the, the actual effect of that change was to provide much stronger support to historic PRI areas of the country or historic PRI states of the country. I want to look at this graph that illustrates the percentage change in the amount of transfers. And here we have three groups of states. The states where the PRI lost a majority before 1997, then states where the PRI lost Congress state majority between 97 and 2009. And finally, states where the PRI lost a majority of Congress after 2009. And you see that there's, in the changes that were implemented in the 90s, which were the most important, the, the states most greatly benefited by those changes are those where the PRI lasted in power the longest, right? Followed by the intermediate category, and then finally by those states where there was strong electoral competition before 97. Why 97? Because 1997 is the moment when in the whole country, the PRI lost the majority of Congress. So states that where this happened before 97 are kind of cautious electoral competition states where a non-PRI majority arrived before the national um, event happened. And then the other two occurred either on that year or afterwards. And then I want you to look at this other graphic where I illustrate the ratio between 
tax revenue, local tax revenue, and transfers. Okay, I'm using this as a measure of the development of local state capacities, of national state capacity over time. How does it compare the, the ratio of the amount of resources that the state collects versus the amount of resources that it receives from the exterior? And you can see that more or less the three groups of states were more or less at the same ratio at the before the most important changes in decentralization. And over time, the one that performs worst is the one where the PRI remained in power the longest, right? And the same gradient that we see in this uh, graph, where PRI longest, then uh, intermediate category, and PRI losing earliest, is reproduced here. That group that received the least amount of resources in the 1990s is the one that performs best in terms of tax collection over time, even though it's not clear that this was the case before the changes in the 1990s. So to me, this is, a, this is an indication that uh, there's, a, there's a rentier effect going on. We have documented, I, I didn't want to bring a regression table for, from a different place to illustrate this point, but we, in the other two projects that I'm talking about, we have uh, quantitatively documented very well this rentier effect uh, in terms of tax collection capacities at the subnational level. That is, states that received a lot of money in the 90s ended up performing very poorly in the later stages over time. Okay, suggestive evidence of the link number two. So again, this is this rentier effect of, is suggestive evidence of the first link that I have right here, which is resources obtained leading to potential rentier regimes versus non-rentier regime, regimes. I want to talk now about inter-elite conflict. And I, I, I'm going to talk about the cases of Puebla and Querétaro, which basically are two states that were more or less equally endowed at the moment when liberalization happened. That is, they were relatively rich uh, states which had comparatively high levels of um, industrialization. In the case of Puebla, the toy industry uh, had developed there for a long time. In the case of Querétaro, it was more the appliances and manufacturing sector that was there. And what we see is a very, very contrasting trajectory, right, uh, of both political, both political and economic. So in the case of Puebla, we do not see this kind of split within the political elite that then leads to strong electoral competition. We see, what you see is an insulated political elite that actually remains in power in succession, right? You can trace the lineages of politicians and governors in the case of Puebla and their connections from the 80s all the way to the first time when they lost power late in the 2000s. It's an insulated political elite that it's in perpetual conflict with business organizations in the state. Political competition does materialize later through the very, very strong support that business, local business organizations provide to the PAN, but the, the PRI is able to fend off these, these challenges. It does negotiate very, very strongly with one actor, which is Volkswagen. That's the one actor, economic actor, that does have very strong connections with the state government, but the rest of the business elite has a very contentious relationship with this political elite. And over time, what we see is not the implementation of any sort of consistent pattern of economic policy making leading to deindustrialization and relative economic decline. In the maps that I showed before, particularly the one that has to do with, with GDP, you can see that Puebla is one of the biggest losers after economic liberalization. In contrast, in Querétaro, what you have is that both PRI and PAN developed very strong connections with the business organizations. 
So there was a, a strong split within the PRI that signaled a strong conflict within existing political elites that opened up the space for early political competition. There was this Comisión Tripartita that was created in the 80s that went on to become a crucial instrument of economic planning that was at first established as a mechanism to deal with labor unrest in the 80s, but that later on became a crucial instrument of economic planning. It has, as its name suggests, room for representation of business, of labor, and of government. This commission then gave way to an economic development planning board. And ultimately, what you see in the case of Querétaro is a trajectory of very successful industrial reconversion. Querétaro is one of the cases, not only in terms of, of GDP growth per se, but in terms of the characteristics of the local economy that it has experienced a most successful reconversion after liberalization. And again, with one of the most capital intensive manufacturing sectors that you see in the entire country. Okay, let me move on very quickly. I'm closing right now so that I can comply with the time that I have to some issues that I see ahead. So obviously, again, this is very much work in progress. It's, it's uh, the whole conceptual framework is the beginning of what it's about to come. And I need a lot of input with regards to the very framework that I'm using, but also uh, methodologically speaking, how to move on. So let me just talk about a couple of these things. So the first one thing is, whether or not I'm missing something big, right? So I'm looking at these three factors that I see as the most important ones in the changes in um, trajectories of economic governance at the subnational level, which are decentralization, elite conflict, inter-elite conflict, and labor capital relations. I wonder if I'm missing something big that I should be considering. Second, whether or not this kind of very analytically oriented, ideal, typical way of thinking of subnational regimes is adequate and whether or not there are too many states maybe that cannot be successfully categorized. I'm wondering myself about that, even though I've done this exercise now several times looking at the data and it does seem make sense in terms of socioeconomic structure and socioeconomic changes. I wonder if I'm placing too much kind of restrictions on my thinking about this by using this very analytically oriented model based on only four subnational development regimes. Then finally, in regards to evidence, I the way that I'm thinking about this project is a mixed methods type of project in which I explore these ideas quantitatively and then qualitatively by looking at a, at a limited number of cases. I'm worried though the quantitative part may be a little bit difficult, first because the argument does not imply constant cost-effect relationships, but also because the main variable of interest, which is the one that has to do with subnational development regimes, is highly subjective in a sense, right? But any ideas, you know, on how to capture quantitative effects of critical juncture and path dependency quantitatively would be greatly appreciated. One thing that I'm sure about is that I do want to make a comparison between one or two cases that are representative of each one of these regimes. And that's it. That's it. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Thank you.